I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Juliet Funt. Her new book is A Minute to Think, Reclaim Creativity, Conquer Busyness, and Do Your Best Work. The global workforce has a busyness problem. We're overworked, overwhelmed, and operating at breakneck speeds. Every space on our calendar is filled to the brim with no minute to spare and no moment left unmaximized. Urgency is the norm and immediacy is the gold standard. It's no wonder that as we emerge from the disruption of the pandemic and head, head back to the office, weary professionals are experiencing burnout like never before. And 40% of workers globally are considering quitting their jobs. Renowned keynote speaker and executive advisor, Juliette Funt, presents a fundamental reimagining of how we approach work that meets the unique demands of the current moment. She reveals the performance-enhancing power of the strategic pause, periods of open, unscheduled time that allow us to think more wisely and creatively. She's been featured in Forbes and Fast Company and has worked with brands such as Spotify, National Geographic, Pepsi, Nike, Wells Fargo, ESPN, and many more. Welcome to the show, Juliet. Thank you. Nice Nice to be here. Nice to have you here. Busyness, busyness, busyness. Uh, uh-huh. I, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. No, at work and at home, and I just, uh, probably in every aspects of our lives, right? Um, so, uh-huh. yeah. Let's, I guess, I guess my first question is this busyness, how do we, how do we get it? How do we get into this? I mean, why are we in this situation? Even pre-COVID and po- and during COVID and post-COVID, we're still doing it. Busy, busy, busy. It, Even it's if amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Juliet B. Shore is a sociologist I talked to in the book. She calls it performative busyness. We don't even know why we're doing it anymore. And there's elements of the insatiability of our culture, there's the conformity element where we look around, there's poor modeling in leadership in corporate America, there's not a lot of modeling for thoughtfulness and recuperation and boundaries, and so we suck in what is around us and we copy it and we mimic it and then we forget at some point that it has become fully internalized and there is no they doing it to us anymore, it's just the cadence of our own systems at that point. And don't you think it's also, um, as you're talking about community corporations, it's sort of in our DNA now, there's something mm. that is, that's related to status. People really enjoy, there's something about saying, oh, I am so busy. I have to do this and this. And they want to prove to you how busy they are, no matter what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It becomes a synonym for important. I am so important. Look at all the places I have to be and look at all the meetings I have to be in. But it's, it's draining workers at a level, I, I've watched this pattern for 20 years, so it's not pandemic related, but where we are now is frightening. The 52% officially burnt out, you said 40% leaving jobs, uh, and I don't really think that leaders are going into the first quarter of the business year fully equipped to solve the element of this that is the human problem. They're doing really good at throwing signing bonuses and vacation stipends and special snacks, and <laughs> they're, they're, it's like a giant confetti cannon of these good intentions heading toward workers. But they're skipping the red-hot center, which is to change the way that work feels. 
for people every day, and that they are distressingly not addressing. Okay. Well, that's what you address in your book. So how do we do that? Because you're right. I don't think they are addressing. The, I mean, they're, they're addressing all these other issues, but they don't get to the literally yeah. the heart of the matter. I agree. The foundational metaphor that we want to work with to get out of this is that of building a fire. So imagine <clears throat> I grew up in New York City, didn't have a lot of experience building fires as a kid, but I learned that you need to have the right stuff. You have to have dry wood and good fire starter, maybe pine cones or something like that. But if you skip one critical ingredient in building that fire, it will never, ever turn from a spark to a blaze. And that ingredient is space. It's the space in between the combustibles that makes the spark turn into a flame. And this is the metaphor that we need to bring into the workplace. Workers everywhere, all over the world, they wake up in the morning, they have a little spark. Their talents, their desire to contribute, they pick their outfit, they grab their coffee, they walk into work, and that spark is extinguished by the way that work plays out. And that, in my opinion, is what needs to change. What kind of a response are you getting uh, from, I mean, I listed a whole, I mean, I listed a lot of high profile companies that you, or brands that you have worked with and, you, you know, you featured in Forbes and Fast Company. And what's the response of all of these, these to, to your uh, talking about space and the need for space and, and <clears throat> not being smothered and the, the fire yeah. yeah, it's been like a, a thirsty person in the desert for the leaders who come to it. You know, they, for the leaders, and we have a very uh, lucky client list, but for the people that come to us to do deep transformative work who really want to change the corporate culture and make this a norm, not just a half-day something that everybody forgets 10 minutes later, they are desperate to make human beings have a different experience of work because they care, but also because they want to make their company have good retention, have low burnout, have higher engagement, the metrics that leaders operate by. So they embrace it. And and I really think that where the smartest leaders are going with this work and also with the post-pandemic changes is toward what's called ROW, a results-only work environment. ROW means, results only means, we don't care where you work, we don't care what time you work, what day you work, you're adults, have autonomy, make choices. We care about your results. We care about brilliant ideas, fantastic execution, and when you give people an environment like that, they repay you. They repay you with their dedication and their effort. So where does, I mean, I know that there's a lot of talk about uh, meditation, wake up in the morning, relax yourself, do those kinds of things. Does does that fit into this picture of sort of gaining the space, the quiet space, so that you become, as you say in your book, more creative, that you um, can focus even if there's chaos all around you? Mm-hmm. Meditation and mindfulness are two parallel techniques that are different from our work, but which we think are wonderful. The way that we approach this is to add in to the day something called white space. White space is defined as time without assignment. And so you can imagine if you're going through your day and everything is seamlessly connected, you have that, you don't have that oxygenation, but if you insert some space, what we call a strategic pause, you can pause for a second. You can think for a minute. 
you can have an idea, maybe a creative idea for a new product, and you could follow it and iterate and play with it. It is that white space that we want. And, and the name came from back in the days of executive coaching. If I was coaching an executive, we'd open up their, at that time, paper calendar. We'd look at each day and the days that had more white, the days that had more literal white space where there was so much possibility those were the days where we knew great things could happen. And there are very accessible ways for human beings, regardless of their level of control at work, to get some, I promise you. Juliet, is there a difference when you're trying to create that white space if you're working at home or if you're working in a cubicle in a big corporation? I mean, it's a different environment, a different context to achieve this. There are a lot of subtleties to the application, but the universal tool that people can take anywhere they want is called the wedge. And it's really where we have most people start. If you imagine my, my hands are flat and my fingers are pointing upward, touching like a wedge right now, you want to insert a little wedge of this open time in between activities that without it would have been connected. So between a meeting and a meeting, a, an email and your response between uh, arriving at your front door and walking into kids, little interstitial space, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute. And this is what is accessible for real people. This is not executive level. I have to be a big shot to do this. We lace the day with space. We have that oxygenation. Now, if you want to go all the way to the other end of the extreme um, of application, I can tell you a story about someone in the book that I love this guy. So he is a perfect example of the much more dramatic application of white space. His name is John. He's a security guard at a Fortune 200 company, big company. And the thing that this company cares about is patents. They want to file a lot of patents. It just so happens that this guy, John, the security guard, holds the record for filing the most patents in the company, more than the innovation guys. And I talk to him, and I think the reason is that 95% of his job is white space. He's waiting, and while he's waiting, he can take his really brilliant brain and he can think and play and dance and create with these ideas. And, and the, the kicker, the punchline of the story is that two different times he was promoted into the innovation department to formally become an innovation guy. And now two times he has rejected the promotion and returned to security <laughs> because when he became a regular corporate guy, they filled his day with junk that, that blocked him from that creative process. And so whether it's tiny or giant um, I believe the space can set you free. So is there a way to actually measure that in terms of, I know companies, you know, the bottom line is we have to do business, we have to make money, uh, show us how this is going to work. Is this really going to work or are we just going to be, you know, having a lot of wasted time? I assume that's some of the pushback or would be some of the pushback. Like show us how it's going to help our bottom line. Right. Now, remember, we're not aiming toward a workforce all staring out the window for hours at a time. And and we're we're looking for uh, the space that fuels the best work. But there is a metrics-based lens to this, and it's really interesting. If you look at the opposite of space, it is the clutter of the workday. And we talk about decrapifying that workday that we want to remove all the stuff that blocks the space, emails, meetings, decks, CCs, reports that are written that nobody reads. 
That we do measure. And we take an intake in our clients before we do training with them. And we see usually about a million dollars of annual waste for every 50 people based on work that good people are doing that doesn't really add to the value of the company. And that is extremely easy to track and measure in terms of reduction. The subtler elements of are we getting more products built, um, those are a little harder to measure, but you can measure burnout, you can measure retention, engagement, plenty of metrics that can go up when you allow people to get to good work. That's all people want to do is find the time to do something that feels meaningful and they become more engaged as a result. And as we mentioned earlier, I guess I said 40% of the workplace is quitting. You said it's even more than that. And I would assume that during COVID, people did have a chance to get a lot of white space opportunity to, mm-hmm. to do that and began to f- understand what that feels like as you're talking about the feeling. And so then going back to work to this busyness stuff just doesn't work. And so they have something to compare it to. Yeah, they had both, I think. I think they had, some people had a a first experience of space and they had that feeling. Some people took all the anxiety and fear and kind of just funneled it into more busyness. I think that it was just so much easier to stay in motion during all the early times. You also have to look at how people responded. They said, we're in a crisis. Good people in a crisis. They dig in, they work hard. They started this sprint with high energy, but then it turned into a marathon with the intensity of a sprint. I honestly don't even know how people are still functioning. I I don't even know what comes after burnout. Maybe uh, we are barbecued at this point. They are, I really don't understand how they get up and come in after what they've done in the last 18 months. So it's not surprised. It's not surprising to me that things are breaking down. And what about you personally? Because, I mean, you're the guru. You understand all of this, certainly <laughs> from a cognitive level. So what about personally? How does it work for you? Because you're a very busy woman, a very successful woman, a very connected woman. You are, you know, in the big league. So how do you do it? That's, that's a great question. I don't come to this work because I am by nature a white space type. I come to the work because I am a tech-addicted, high-achieving, Manhattan, go-go, energizer bunny who, I mean, honestly, if I didn't have my own book in my purse, I think uh, I would constantly be falling back into it. So it's not a cure. It's a daily reprieve. This idea of waking up in the morning and realizing that that space is yours for the taking. I have three boys that are 11, 13, 16. I have a rock and roll busy life with them. I do have a big life, but I set a lot of boundaries. And Even when I can't take the giant, yummy, big wedge of white space, I take the little ones. And they can be, they're just so delicious in your personal life. They can just be that extra second when my 13-year-old comes to me with some question like, uh, I I use conditioner on my hair for six days in a row. Is there anything bad about that? (laughs) And you just stare at the beauty of these little life moments and you linger because you have more space, you linger for another second and you, you just drink that in. And that's, that interstitial space makes you more awake and alive and more present, whether you're at work or at home. 
That's a great example because it isn't something that's complex or difficult. You just have to recognize it and that's that that's so true because I think a lot of times and that example is a good one of your son in this busyness chaos that we're involved in you 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 brush your kids off I don't have time I can't mm-hmm. He's, you know they are mm-hmm. trying to communicate you know just what he did and it's I don't have time for this and then you're racing out the door and pushing them out the door and that's the negative side of all of this right um and it comes home with us on our shoes we definitely teach our children we also, there's a, a beautiful part in the book that quotes Bronnie Ware. I, I think many will know her, but she was a palliative care nurse. And she chronicled the top five regrets of dying people. And the number two regret, uh, and the number one regret for all male patients that she tended to was, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. And if we wake up at some point in our life and we've realized that we've missed the joy of the beautiful, tactical, visceral moments of life, it is often because we are too busy and we are brushing our teeth with one hand and cleaning the sink with the other and we just can't stop. So this this work, honestly, the last chapter of the book, chapter 11, about taking it home, my publisher's Harper Business, I'm a business person, but bringing it home might just be my biggest passion about this. Boundaries. You mentioned boundaries. I think boundaries are critical. Let's talk about that because emotional boundaries, physical boundaries, uh, that's what keeps Mm. us sane. Yes, I think the greatest place to start, I know you have some corporate folks and and entrepreneurs that listen. So if I triaged the day of the average worker and we were going to start with the most critical thing, it would be this Zoomaholic insane meeting marathon now that we've gotten used to because of COVID. So you open up your calendar and it looks like a paint swatch, just color, 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 all the way down. And I want to teach the listeners a really simple rule that can begin to change that, which is never let the colors touch. You want to have stripes when you open your calendar, because when you have white stripes, they represent five or 10 or 15 minutes of oxygenating space throughout the day. Now, you go into one of those stripes, you break it down, what's it for? Well, it's for looking backward. That's to look at the thing you just did, the meeting or the person you talked to. Maybe you make a note or you think a little bit about how it could have gone better. Then you look within. Maybe take one second. I'm a person. Do I need a drink of water? Should I close my eyes for 10 seconds? And then you look forward. Okay, I have another meeting in seven minutes. Who is it? What do they need from me? What unique aspects of myself or my proposition do I need to really be present for? And those stripes are a fantastic entry-level technique and they really change the nature of the day. Yeah, it's interesting because this whole, as you mentioned the Zoom culture and I guess I could still be guilty of that too. I think well I'm 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 relaxed, I'm calm, I I don't have to get to you know a place of business, I don't have to go to a studio, I can have a studio in my house, all of those kinds of things, but you can get caught up as you're saying in the same way whether you're doing Zoom calls at home or whether you're in your office in a corporate setting, um, the chaos can be the same unless you pay attention to the busyness and, and, and the space. A minute to think. I like the title of your book, mm-hmm. by the way, A Minute to Think. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I also think another factor maybe to discuss is what we call hallucinated urgency. And it's this 
persistent mirage, home or in the office, that just everything has the equal time sensitivity and that it's all on red alert mode. And that is a very um, pernicious threat to your nervous system and your ability to prioritize and So I would propose, and I do propose to people, that there should, in a healthy work environment, be three categories of urgency. And once you learn them, you can discuss them with each other. One is that things can be not time sensitive. That is true, but we don't talk about it. Things can be emotionally time sensitive, which means you really just want to know, but there's no tactical urgency. And then things can be tactically time sensitive, which means they actually do have a correlation where speed to action is tied to a business result. And it's only the third one that we really want to treat as time sensitive. And these are the kind of conversations you can get a group of people, maybe get one buddy reads the book with you, or maybe you do a team book club or something to talk about what does this look like for us? How much control could we have over it? Why do we do it? You asked the first question, why do we do this? But to have teams actually talking to each other about it is really powerful. I think that's one of the most critical points in the book, this sense of urgency. I think that is so on target. It's sort of, you could make the comparison to hospitals and triage. Not everything is an emergency mm-hmm. not there, or, and has the urgency of an emergency. And yet you're right. In, in uh, When we're doing our work, this is an emergency. This is urgent. I have to do this. Yeah. Like, sit down. No, you don't. You, you know, there are some mm-hmm. things that are, but not everything. And I think that's one of the biggest problems that, pe- that uh, we have in the workforce and, and personally, too, as well, like to be able to, to recognize what is urgent and what isn't urgent. Mm-hmm. And it affects the brain. The frontal lobe of the brain where all the creative stuff happens gets exhausted. And when it is exhausted, it can't function. And so if you have a I have a leader who's really in, if their love language is innovation and creativity, I, sh- I, I give them all the science about an exhausted frontal lobe can't do the thing that you hired it for. You go out, you find these people, you pay recruiters, you got this brilliant mind, and then you, you redline that Porsche every day and, and it doesn't produce what you want it to produce. Conversely, when you pause, when you are in a pause, It feels like it's kind of a nothing moment, but if you took an MRI of your brain, you see all this complicated activity in the default neural network that's linked to insight and introspection and memory and creativity when there is a cessation of this activity. Pre-internet and I had my grandfather ran a hugely successful business and actually did the same kinds of things that you're talking about, just maybe naturally or it fit more into the culture Mm. at the time. He always came, he came home for lunch, was in a city where he could do that and always came home for lunch Mm. and practice the kind of thing that you're talking about because a lot of this other stuff wasn't available, obviously, but the business was successful and his relationships were more successful than what we've been talking about. So it really does work. I mean, we can look at maybe how businesses have evolved into this chaotic, um, crazy way of interacting in the workplace, I guess is what you would say, right? Whether you're a CEO I or whether you're... There's a, yeah. 
Whoever you are, there's a lot of examples in the book. Phil Knight of Nike used to have a chair in his living room that was only for daydreaming. And that's where he sat when he wanted to daydream. And Bill Gates, very famous for going away for these think weeks where he, I, despite all the chaos around him right now, that that his his concentrated time of these think weeks is famous for those who believe in this kind of work. So it, it absolutely does work. And and all we have to do is build one norm at a time in a company, and then all of a sudden we step back and we realize that we've made a calm and efficient culture. One norm around meetings, one norm around emails, one at a time. And it's really important to think of those things as norms and cultural shifts because leaders just like to throw rules. So they'll say no more than five slides on a deck or no more than three people on a CC. That's not going to do it. You have to have a philosophy under which those rules are operating, and then people can really take flight in this kind of change. We have to say goodbye. Excellent advice. A minute to think. Think about this, folks. A minute to think. Reclaim creativity. Conquer business and do your best work. Great book. Author is Juliet Funk. F-U-N-T. We have 30 seconds. Give us a website we can go to so we can get more information about you. Oh, sure. Yeah. You can go to julietfunt.com, J-U-L-I-E-T-F-like-fred-U-N-T.com. You can get the first chapter of the book for free. You can also take a test there called the busyness test. You, We've been talking about it all day, so you can find out how you individually rate in the world of busy, and that's a fun one that everybody enjoys. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Juliet. Great information for all of us. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Planning for 